the Apostle Paul woke up one day and he looked up around him. He looked around him and there was dim light. There was a vaulted ceiling with paint peeling off the top. And he wondered, where am I? And he felt a tug on his wrist and he saw a burly guard that he was chained to. And he scratched his bald head, kind of like him, um, pulled on his gray beard, rubbed his eyes, and his hand going against the bridge of his large nose, kind of shook his head to himself and said, what, what happened? Did this really happen? Over a 48-hour period, two days, he had come out of his detour into Jerusalem. Remember, Paul wanted to go to Rome, but God said you have to go to Jerusalem. So he made this detour to Jerusalem, and he pretty much got stuck there, thought for a while he might get killed. But now as he's coming out of it, it's like, was this all a dream, or did it really happen? Everything happened so fast. What happened actually was in fulfillment to what Agabus, his friend, the prophet, had said. You will be handed over from the Jews to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Romans. And that's what happened to him. It was exactly what Jesus had said just really the day before in a vision that he'd had, where Jesus told him that you are going to go to Rome. He's going to Rome now as a prisoner, which means he will be able to have access to the highest people in power to give his testimony and to have trials before them. Much better than he ever expected. Was it all a dream or was this really happening? It was really happening. You ever felt like, was that a dream that I just had? Because so many circumstances happened so fast. But it was God working through all these circumstances in his life. And that's what we're going to talk about is how God did that. On paper, the Romans rescued Paul and set him back on his way to Rome. But reality is God took Paul out of Jerusalem. And the narrative we have today is really fascinating because it never mentions God. And, and that's striking because as we go through all the chapters in the Acts of the Apostles, God is not only mentioned in each chapter, but usually we are introduced to God as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in almost every passage we've been talking about. But in this passage, God is not mentioned. The same thing is true, and it reminds me of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. God is never mentioned in Esther. And yet, he stands out everywhere as orchestrating all of the events. And the exclusion of his name serves to make us more aware of his presence. And that's what we're going to see today, that God is the one who is controlling all these events. And we're going to look at how God takes Paul out of Jerusalem. We'll look at um, Acts chapter 23, and we'll start by just looking at the first couple verses, verses 12 through 15. Let me read that to us uh, as we examine this first part, which I will call the plot to assassinate Paul. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. There's a plot to assassinate Paul. Now, what's happened, remember, is that Paul, just the day before, had gone to the Sanhedrin, which was the council of the 70 or the council of the Jews that ruled in Jerusalem. And he had gone before them and it hadn't gone so well. 
And so now some people are really upset with Paul. The people that are really upset with Paul are who? Probably these guys that want to do this are the zealots. Who are the zealots? The zealots are the Jewish revolutionaries. If you go back and you remember in your history classes, you probably never take this. We don't, we don't you study all this, but if part of ancient history is the Jewish people revolted against the Romans. And that's all in the process of taking place. These are, the res you know, these are the revolutionaries. These are the insurrectionists. These are, you know, if you remember the movie, if you ever saw Les Miserables, you know, it's to the barricades. These are the young, you know, students who are going to overthrow the government and are going to rule. And they don't like Paul for two reasons, primarily. One is that he's making friends with their enemies. Anybody who's not Jewish, you know, it's, it's become very intense and very racist. You know, as often happens in countries, and we've seen some of that in our country, and, and they're basically saying if they're not Jewish, we don't want them. And yet Paul's making friends with these Gentiles. Not only that, but Paul is saying that if you want to come into a relationship with Jesus, you can bypass Judaism. You can go directly to Jesus. You don't have to become a Jew. They don't like that. But in addition, they don't like the fact that every time he's put on trial, he makes them look like fools. And in addition to that, they know he's a Roman citizen and they figure he's going to get off. So they've got to eliminate him. It's the only way. They've got to get rid of the dude. So how are they going to do that? So they make an oath that they're, not, they're going to go on a food strike. And we were looking at this as pastors together. And Clifton's first question was, uh, he said, I wonder what happened to those guys. Um, you know, I mean, they didn't kill Paul, so did they all die? <laughs> you know, you kind of wonder about that. I mean, that, those are the kind of enemies I have, you know, I, I like to have. You know, if I'm going to fight a war with somebody, they can have a food strike. And I say, go, go for it, you know, have a food strike. Um, that doesn't work too well usually in a situation like this. But, um, but what we did learn is I, I looked up some things and I found out that some scholars actually have this intrigued them too. They're like, everybody's wondering, did these guys all die? You know what happened? And what we discovered is, is, there was a loophole. There always seems to be loopholes, right? So the loophole is if you can't fulfill your vows, then you're not held to it. So it appears that they did survive. But they want to kill Paul, and they know that Paul is in the, the tower, what they call the Tower of Antonia, which was built into the wall there in Jerusalem um, of the temple. And there's this gigantic courtyard, and they'd have to go all the way over to the headquarters of the Sanhedrin. So they'll just, they have 40 guys. They'll ambush him, and they'll kill him. He doesn't even know it's coming. But listen how they do this. It's, it's very interesting. Uh, first, first few things they do. First of all, they take a, an oath to, to bind themselves to this. And my question is always, why do you have to take an oath if you know what you're saying is right? It's almost an admission of guilt when you say, oh, I have to, you know, it's like, yeah, either, either what you're doing is right or not. I mean, if it's right, why don't you tell the world? If you have to hide it or if you have to take an oath that I'm going to do this horrible thing, then is it really of God? By the way, the word for oath here is the same one that Peter used when he denied Jesus. And I like what Jesus himself says about oaths. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 35 to 37, Jesus says that we, should, we shouldn't swear by anything because we cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply that your yes be yes and your no, no, anything else comes from the evil one. And these guys, you know, they're, they're going to control everything by kind of getting themselves all inspired by their oath. So anyway, the thing they do next is even 
almost kind of comical in a sad sort of way, but what they do is they go to the leadership. Now, remember, we said the leadership is called the Council of the Jews of the Sanhedrin. They're not made of Republicans and Democrats. They're made of Sadducees and Pharisees. And the guy who's the head is not the Senate Majority Leader or not the Speaker of the House. The guy who's the head is called um, the Chief Priest. That's Ananias. We know he's a scoundrel from history. And notice the people that are with him are the elders and priests. That means that's the Sadducee party. The Pharisee party is not represented in this meeting. Do you see what they're doing? They're having a secret meeting because Paul had been a Pharisee and they're afraid if they have the Pharisees there, they won't go along with it. And so they hold a secret meeting. There are more Sadducees than Pharisees, so if they can all agree, they can maybe overrule them. So they're just doing this all secretively. And that's wrong. It's also wrong for a Jew to kill a person. It's also wrong, according to the government, for the Jewish people to kill a person. And so they're doing, what they're doing is they're breaking the law in order to keep their law. That's where we're at. That's what it's come down to. And they all agree on this. And here's the question that I have for us today. It's this. Do you see control? Do you ever see control to get your way? Is there ever something that you want so bad you'll do whatever you can to make it happen? Do you ever see control with your kids? Do you ever see control with your employees? With your students? With, you know, the people on your team? Do you see control with your spouse? I would say that probably every one of us has a tendency to seek control. That's what, you know, sin is, is trying to control the world, trying to play God, basically, trying to do everything according to our way. And so we all have that innate tendency to try to control the people around us. And some people are really quite good at it. Uh, there's two primary ways to control. One, one method is steamrolling. You know, where you just, you know, you get in somebody's face, you come in with your fist, you know, you... you bully and intimidate them through words or through actions to get them to do what you want them to do. Then the other way is when that doesn't work, you manipulate. And you do anything you can to get people to work against each other, to, to, to lies, to deny things, and do whatever you can to try to get it to happen. From the beginning of time, people are trying to control events. These zealots and this Sanhedrin are trying to control the events of God. And they're not going to succeed. But it's a great example for us to say, do we do that? And I think we naturally do. Um, I know one of Mitch's favorite passages in Scripture, and it, it's, it's one of mine too, is, um, is Psalm 37, verse 4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, or in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a, it's, it's a paradigm shift. If you try to do things your way, it may appear that you're succeeding, but even your success, apart from God, will mean nothing in eternity. And you, and you will feel an emptiness that you can't explain despite the success that, from the world's perspective, you're having. But on the other hand, if you're doing it God's way, if you're following what God is telling you to do and you're aligning yourself with him, if you're praying over it, you're studying the Bible, you're getting counsel over it, you're carefully making sure you're following the Lord of, of creation, it's amazing how things fall in place. Even when things don't really work out the way maybe you thought they would, there's this peace you have about them, and there's this sense of purpose. Much like Jeff was saying, all of a sudden the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall in place for your life. And that's going to be a big theme for us today. The starting place, of course, is you've got to surrender your life to Christ. You, know, you need, you need you know, to um, admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. 
I mean, that's, that's essential here. You can't be the one who's plays God. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And you need to choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. And that's the beginning. And once you do that, then you begin to see these other pieces come together. And, and this theme is going to work itself out as we go through this passage. The next thing that we see with Paul is that the Romans learn of the plot. Verses 16 through 17. It says, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. Remember, a centurion is an officer. The commander told the young, took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, What is it you want to tell me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. This is kind of like the movie or TV show, you know, the TV serial where the hero is in the dungeon cells and you find out that when he comes out, they're going to kill him and there's no way to save him. And I always enjoy that when it is the main star. As that I don't worry. I know he's in contract for a few years. They're not going to do away with him, right? And, and we don't have to worry too much about Paul because the contract is, is that he is going to last the rest of this book. So the thing is, is how is he going to get out? Who is going to save him? The most unlikely of people comes to the save. He comes to the, save the day. And the person that comes is his nephew. And we didn't even know he had a nephew. All that we know about Paul's family, basically up to this point, is that he has parents. I mean, because that's got to be, right? <laughs> But other than that, we don't know. And now we know he has a sister. And a lot of people think he lived with his sister in Jerusalem when he first came there. But there's no mention of her anyplace else, and he never stays with her anymore. What's going on? In Philippians chapter 3, verse um, 8, Paul says that he's given up all things to follow Christ. And uh, some believe that that's a reference to the fact that he was probably disinherited by his family. And so he doesn't, they're not really in his life. And yet this nephew, who's a young man in Greek means he was late teens, probably early 20s, this young man, who is his nephew, comes to tell him this information. Why? You know, we don't know for sure. Maybe he just, you know, had fond memories of Paul. Maybe he used to ride piggyback with him when he was a little kid or something. Or maybe he was moved by Paul's speech. A bigger question may be, how did he know this? And that answer isn't too hard to figure out. He's a young man, and the only people that knew this were the zealots. Could he have been a zealot? Or friends with the zealots? More than likely. He hears about this, he has a heart tug, and he goes and he tells Paul. Paul has him tell the others, and he essentially saves the day. Some thoughts about this that I don't want you to think about. One is um, list your, to list your escapes. Have you ever thought about how many times God helps you escape? I mean, I think it happens almost daily. I know for me, weekly, it happens with my sermons. You know, I'm always working on a sermon, and I'm always complaining to my wife. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. 
I don't think I'm going to get all this done that I need to, but it always works out. You know, somebody cancels an appointment or all of a sudden my mind is clear. I have special time that afternoon to get it done. Everything always works out. God always gets done what I need to get done. I've discovered that. So why do I worry about it so much? And throughout our lives, there's predicaments we get in with jobs, with work, with relationships, biggest situations. And we look back and we think, how did I get to where I'm at today where I'm out of that? Or if I'm in it, I can look back and say, he got me out before, so he'll get me out again. So much of life is really an adventure if we look at it from the right perspective. I had an older pastor who mentored me a few years back, and he shared with me a little book. He had a bunch of these little books. He'd actually hand them out. He liked them so much, called The Epic. And in The Epic, that's, that's basically what he writes about. Um, that, and I like the premise of it. The premise is exhilarating, and I want to read that to you and, and read what he says. John Eldridge writes the book, and, and just what he says here is almost worth the whole book. But listen to what he says about our life, because I think it's, it's very true in Scripture. He says, life for most of us feels like a movie we've arrived to 40 minutes late. Sure, good things happen, sometimes beautiful things, but tragic things happen too. What does it mean? We find ourselves in the middle of a story that is sometimes wonderful, sometimes awful, usually a confusing mixture of both. And we haven't a clue how to make sense of it all. No wonder we keep losing heart. We need to know the rest of the story. For when we were born, we were born into the midst of a great story begun before the dawn of time, a story of adventure, of risk and loss, heroism and betrayal. A story where good is warring against evil, danger lurks around every corner, and glorious deeds wait to be done. Think of all those stories you've ever loved. There's a reason they stirred your heart. They've been trying to tell you about the true epic ever since you were young. There is a larger story, and you have a crucial role to play. History is his story. And I guess you could look at it this way. Each of us have a chapter in the book. You ever looked at it that way? We know at the end we're going to win and we'll be home free in heaven. But our lives, the tragedies and the triumphs, are all part of the story that God has interwoven throughout history. And we all play a part. Every person is important and significant. But God is the one who's in control. And our desire is to align ourselves again with him and follow him as he works in our lives and to pay attention to what he's doing around us. There, these things aren't coincidence. When things work out, it's providential, not just coincidental. Amen. There's another thing that's important here, and that is uh, the question of uh, who are you helping? Think of this man, this young man. From what we understand, he was not a believer and never became a believer. But God used Paul's nephew to save Paul so that he could go on to Rome and expand the gospel so that we could be sitting here today. Just one little act. Last weekend, some people asked me how my um, father-in-law's memorial went. Um, it was amazing. My father-in-law was a quiet man who did not like to get recognition and over 300 people came to pay tribute to him. He was a guy who took the newspaper in the morning and put it on everybody's porch. 
and they didn't know where they were getting it from. They finally figured out. He was the guy when the, when the neighbor died, he would start mowing the lawn without her ever asking. He was the guy who would spend six hours over the next door neighbors and help him fix things. Um, he was the guy everybody went to at work to help with their problems. But he didn't like the publicity. You don't have to be famous to have an impact on people's lives. You can serve them in all the different ways that you have. Everybody has a different thing to do. And some people have mechanical gifts, and some people have, you know, encouragement gifts, and some people, you know, are just good at, at helping people just being around and just being there. I mean, we all have things that we can contribute to people. What has God called you to do? Your very job is a ministry. And how do you use that for God? Now, the final thing that happens as we, we bring this to its close um, is we see, uh, we see that the Romans transport Bob to... Uh, Bob, Paul? Bob. <laughs> now, that may have been providential. So if your name is Bob, could you... Uh, no, um, that's interesting. Um, you never know what's going to happen up front sometimes. It could have been worse. <laughs> Romans transport Paul to Caesarea, verses 23 through 35. It says, Then he called two of the centurions, this is the commander, and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Spearmen, that's my family. Um, and go to Caesarea at 9 tonight. Make mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. This is the commander writing. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him before the Sanhedrin. I found that their accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent to him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let uh, the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the, the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, learning he was from Cilicia. He said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. And that's where it all started because Paul is being held guard in Herod's palace, this old palace that is now being used as headquarters by the governor and for prison cells. And that's where we started today. So that's how he gets there. It's really intriguing because... Um, usually a chiliarch or tribunal, which is, would be the title, the formal title for this commander, would be in charge of a thousand people. But commonly only about 600 people would be, on average, the people that he had in his barracks. So if he has 600 people and you do the math, 470 he sends to protect Paul, what does that tell you about how serious a matter he thinks this is? He does not want a Roman citizen to get in trouble under his watch. That's very, very important. He goes at night so that he's under cover of darkness. He goes at night because it's hot and he wants to go faster and it's cool. He brings cavalry so he can go quicker. He gives Paul some of his own mounts so that he can put his belongings there and maybe escape if things get bad. He brings a whole troop of soldiers around him and they go for about 35 miles to Antipatris because that whole area is a zealot stronghold. 
and they don't want to be ambushed. But once they get to Antipatris, they spend the night, there's no more zealots in that area. Now they're in Gentile territories. Everybody goes home, and the cavalry takes him the rest of the way. He has it all figured out. We learn more about this guy, commander, this commander. We've learned that his name is Claudius Lysias. Lysias is a Greek name. Remember, he told Paul earlier, I paid a lot of money for my Roman citizenship. He probably paid a, paid a government official under Emperor Claudius, and so he takes on his name. This guy's a climber. Okay, we learned that about him. He's anything to get ahead. Takes on the, the emperor's name when he's emperor. He, he you know, pays for everything. He you know, pays for his Roman citizenship. He's, and listen to how he talks about himself. I rescued Paul. Did he rescue Paul? Remember, he came to stop a riot and just found Paul in the middle of it. He says, I rescued him because I found out he was a Roman citizen. Did he find out he was a Roman citizen? He didn't know he was a Roman citizen until later. Does he tell them that he was about to torture Paul before he found out he's a Roman citizen? Oh, did he forget that? You see how he's just playing with things? Everything he's writing here is I'm, he's trying to control events so that he can get ahead. That's what this is all about. There's another interesting note. He says, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. Basically, there's nothing subversive about Christianity is what he's saying. It's, there's some religious dis, you know, disagreements with other religions, but there's no problems here. That's the same thing Gallio said earlier, and it's a message that Luke wants us to get. We, as followers of Christ, are peace-loving people. We're not subversive. Governments don't have to be afraid of us. Unfortunately, that will, you know, there, there will be persecution under Emperor Nero, and that's already being anticipated when this book is written, which is another reason why Luke is pointing this out. See, there was nothing. We weren't doing anything wrong. But at this point... The, the thought that I have is, is, do you work with God or against him? You know, think about that. Do you work with God or against him? These guys are all working against God in their own way. And again, it's somewhat comical, but we have um, all these different people. We have the zealots. They're going against God for their own purposes. What happens to the zealots? How many people even knew who I was talking about today? They're obliterated. They are wiped out in the Jewish wars by the Romans. And the Sanhedrin falls apart as a result and has never been resurrected. They're gone. They thought they were controlling all the events, right? They're gone. And Claudius Lysias, did he get ahead? He disappears from the annals of history. It appears he didn't get promoted and nothing came out of this for him. And Governor Felix was a scoundrel and he'll get his in a couple years. And one person comes out of this as a great person. One person comes out of this as one of the greatest persons, one of the greatest people in history, especially from a spiritual perspective, and that's Paul. And he's a prisoner. You see how distorted things can look to us? What you see today, some of the people you see today, and you say, that person is successful. From God's perspective, that's not true. And 10 years down the road, you'll look back and say, why did I think that person was successful? And some of the people that are just regular people that are walking with Jesus, and you don't always notice, they're going to be rewarded in heaven. And so the goal is to work with God, not against him. And even as followers of Christ, sometimes we kind of buck against God because we want to be who we want to be. You know what I mean? I, I, I remember growing up, I wanted to be a certain person that I wasn't. It, it took me a while to embrace, well, this is who God made me to be. And that's kind of a little bit of a challenge for us sometimes. Yeah. I've got a, got a great story. I wanted to be Joe, by the way. Um, but <laughs> no, 
Oh, no, that's right. You weren't a wrestler, so. Um, so I, we had an interesting experience. Years ago, we met uh, Ross and Robin Gunn. And they were youth leaders. You know, he was a youth pastor, and she was working very much with him in ministry. And Carrie and I had applied for the first job. First job I ever applied for as a pastor, as an associate. And I didn't get it. But we met the guns, and we would see them regularly at a pastor's conference, and we became pretty good friends. Robin was a delightful lady, and she wrote a book. We were all excited for her. And then we went different places. They went different places. I heard they ended up in Washington, lost track of them, but I always kind of wondered, you know, what happened to them. Well, she actually became pretty well-known, and I've caught up with her, not personally, but I read about her in news media every once in a while. And I read an interview about her in a magazine recently, and I thought it was really intriguing. Um, I got kind of the rest of the stories, and I, I thought I'd share it with you today. Uh, Robin tells the ba her background that she went to Capron Way um, Bible College in London, and her dream was to be a missionary. And so she goes there to be a missionary, and she smuggled Bibles, this little Christian girl, I don't know mom and dad knew, but she was smuggling Bibles into communist-controlled Eastern Europe when she was, you know, college age. But things didn't work out for missionary work. She was told she should get more education, so she went to Biola University. And she kept applying for missions, but she also fell in love with this guy who wanted to be a youth pastor, Ross. Well, anyway, what ends up happening is she applied. Her last job she applied for was to be a laundry maid for a mission agency in Kenya, and they turned her down. And so she was pretty depressed, but she decided, I'm just going to move on with my life. So she got married to Ross, and they went into youth ministry. And while they're doing youth ministry, Ross notices that she has a gift for telling stories. So he says, why don't you go to the local Christian writers conference that's coming to town and see if that helps you? She did, and she began writing. And she would write some devotionals, and she would write for some women's books. Nothing big, but, you know, it was, it was fulfilling for her. Well, she went to a camp, a youth camp one summer, and you know what? She discovered books that her kids were, were reading. And they weren't good. They were inappropriate. And she said to these girls, you need to be reading better books. And she challenged them to read better books. And they challenged her. They said, then write them for us. And she took up the challenge. And I remember her telling us it was very painful because she went to those girls and had them critique everything she wrote. It took her two years to write her first Christy Miller book. But after she wrote that book, um, she went on to write 90 others. The others are spin-offs of that book. It's become one of the most popular series in Christian writing. Um, and it was interesting because she went to London recently at a conference and she met a lady who was from Kenya who had read her books and had impacted her life. And they're sitting at the table and she couldn't help telling this lady, you know, I wanted to be a missionary to your country, but they rejected me, you know, as a laundry maid. So she said, she laughed, the, the lady there said, the, the Kenyan laughed and laughed, and then she said this, she said, you did not need to come to Kenya to wash our laundry. You sent your stories, and they have washed our hearts. She says the thing that keeps her going is so many girls write her and tell her that they've come to know Christ. And Robin Jones Gunn concludes this interview with these words. That's when I began to see how God's ways really aren't my, our ways. He planted the missionary woman dream in my heart, but he was accomplishing it in his way. I eventually willingly did what I was created to do, tell stories. I guess I became a missionary after all, just not the way I thought I would. When we follow God's dreams, our dreams become a reality. 
Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I pray that we would think, you know, there's each of us have at least 8 to 15 people in our lives as we talk about. You've placed them in our lives. How can we begin by ministering to them? Just being servants, using our gifts and abilities, that uh, inviting people to church, loving people, telling people about you. Lord, help each of us to follow you and to, even in the hard times, enjoy the adventure and enjoy the fact that uh, we're, in a, we're in a big epic and we're going to win in the end as we hold on to Jesus. In his name we pray.